Hey, gang, this week's episode is brought to you by Binge Sesh, a new podcast from the Los Angeles Times. They're talking about Winning Time, the HBO special series, and awesome at that, and just renewed for a second season about the Magic Era, Magic Johnson Era, that is, Lakers. The Los Angeles Lakers in all their glory. You want to hear the real story? Well, join LA Times TV editor Matt Brennan and professional basketball player Kareem Maddox, and you'll hear from actors, TV writers, professors, experts from the Times themselves, people who were there, and the real story behind winning time and the Lakers of the Magic Johnson era. Listen to it now. It's Binge Sesh, S-E-S-H, wherever you get podcasts on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get them. Give a listen now. And now, here's our show coming up. Cincinnati Gardens is going to come down pretty soon. Its most famous tenant, the Cincinnati Royals of the NBA. And more than 40 years after the Royals left town, a part of them lives on out west. Nine on your side's Ken Brew has the story. Once upon a time, we had the NBA in our town and some decent Royals teams. The Royals of Oscar Robertson, Adrian Smith, Tiny Archibald, and Tom Thacker. Robert Grove remembers some of those players. The club was, it was doing okay, I think, but, you know, the ownership was wanting to make a move. And when the owners want to make a move, they make a move. A move that took the NBA away from Cincinnati almost 45 years ago. But before that, Robert Grove became part of Royals history. He's a UC grad, graphics artist by trade, and Grove designed the last logo the Royals used before packing up and heading to Kansas City. I brought it to them totally unsolicited. And they loved it. The Royals were looking for a new logo. So Grove submitted his idea, and the Royals ran with it. And now, 45 years later, Grove's logo has found new life. The Sacramento Kings, the old Royals franchise, will use his logo design for their upcoming season. It's kind of ironic because they're getting ready to tear the gardens down and the Sacramento Kings are getting ready to open a new arena in Sacramento. So like the team, the building will soon be gone, but the logo? Not yet forgotten. And now, with new life. Ken Brew, Nine on Your Side. Welcome to Good Seats Still Available, a curious little podcast devoted to exploring what used to be in professional sports. Here's your host, Tim Hanlon. All right, all right, all right. How are you, everybody? My name is Tim Hanlon. You know that by now. The show is called Good Seats Still Available. Yeah, you know that by now. And you also should know that, of course, this is our little weekly escapade into what used to be in pro sports. Uh, we love to revel in all things defunct and previously domiciled. And we've got an overdue topic to get you there uh, back into the hoops realm uh, this week. Um, as uh, said clip uh, sets tone for, uh, and let's give the proper uh, credit to that. That's from uh, July 27th, 2016. Ken Brew, nine on your side. That's uh, also known as WCPO TV Channel 9, the Scripps station in Cincinnati, Ohio. Hello. Yes, we're going to Cincinnati. And um, you uh, Sacramento Kings fans, uh, the handful of those that still remain, given the uh, lamentable uh, patch, shall we say, of, of uh, limited success over the last, uh, I don't know, decade or two plus now. Um uh, should know, and if you don't know, this is uh, a step right up because it'll be a very interesting conversation for you. The Kings uh, were domiciled a long, long time ago in Cincinnati for about uh, about 15 years of its existence, 1957 to 1972 to be exact. 
And uh, if you scratch even a little further beyond the surface, you'll recognize that the Sacramento Kings are uh, one of the, if not the, most um, long-lived, if not maybe by certain historical definitions, the most long-lived professional basketball franchises in the United States. Their original founding was back in 1923 uh, in the semi-pro realm, and we've talked about sort of how the pro hoops game kind of got its sea legs going from collegiate to uh, industrial to uh, regional professional barnstorming-esque things into sort of uh, what what became the NBA roughly 70 or so years ago. And yes, I know that's the 75th anniversary of the NBA, but you also know if you've listened to the show any great length, the predecessors of the National Basketball League and the Basketball Association of America uh, were sort of part of that. And the NBA has uh, decided that they're going to include the BAA part of that uh, lineage into their 75 years, but not the NBL. But I, it, it's a whole thing. But you go back, uh, the Rochester Seagrams, uh, who became then the Rochester Pros, and then by the 40s became the Rochester Royals. This was the team that kind of really was sort of in the NBA in its earliest years. They moved to Cincinnati in 57, uh, lasted 15 years, and that's our conversation this week. We're going to focus on that particular realm of the now Sacramento Kings, but then the Cincinnati Royals with our guest this week, Jerry Schultz, got a couple of really good books out um, on, on the topic, both directly and indirectly. We'll talk about that in a second. But the Royals moved in 72 to Kansas City. Well, actually, Kansas City and Omaha. We'll get to that part of the story, too. Yes, both cities, part of the name, the Kansas City dash Omaha Kings for a good three years, 72 to 75. Then they became the Kansas City Kings fully for about 10 years and then moved to Sacramento in the mid 80s. Um, It's confusing. It's fascinating. uh, It's intriguing. And even uh, when the Royals became the Kings of both Kansas City and Omaha, the idea of actually them playing in multiple cities, despite whatever their name might have been, was absolutely a thing in the Cincinnati Royals version of the team, too. Um, and we'll get into our conversation with Jerry in a few moments. Uh, Cleveland was part of the mix, and, and arguably the arrival of the Cavaliers as a uh, an expansion franchise in the NBA, I think it was in 1970 or so, uh, actually has some pretty strong ties to the, uh, shall we say, extended home games that the Royals played in Cleveland before that franchise in the NBA was granted. Uh, Dayton also got a bunch of games. Uh, uh, Omaha actually was also a place that the Cincinnati version of the team was playing in even before they moved to uh, become the Kings and semi-domicile in Omaha. So th- there's a rationale there. And all of that is and more we get into. And the Cincinnati Royals, a fascinating uh, uh, story and, and discussion. Uh, the clip that you heard at the beginning uh, kind of sets the tone. Uh, Ken Brew at nine on your side. A uh, piece from July 27th, uh, excuse me, 2016. Uh, a guy named Robert Grove interviewed there, uh, who was the guy who designed the, uh, I think, one of the last versions, if not the last version of the Cincinnati Royals logo, which has been not only reborn, but continued uh, in Sacramento Kings fashion uh, today. So uh, I hope uh, Robert Grove is uh, getting some, I don't know, residuals or some kind of love. I, I doubt it. We've explored this on multiple occasions, the sort of graphic designers often hired uh, to create logos for said pro, pro sports teams 
in the past often do not get to benefit from their work uh, going forward or in perpetuity. And um, it's uh, sad because the, the Sacramento Kings logo, if you look at it and compare it directly next to the last version of the Cincinnati Royals logo that uh, Mr. Grove created, um, th- there's no mistaking that that's the, the origin of that came from from Robert Grove. Uh, a, a, a digression, but an important sort of part of the legacy and the story. This is a team that's been all over the place. I mean, from Rochester to New York to now Sacramento, we're going to focus on the 15 years. Crucial, interesting, chock full of history. Memorable, of course, uh, those 15 years as the Cincinnati Royals, Oscar Robertson, Jerry Lucas, uh, the late uh, Maurice Stokes, um, Bob Cousy was a coach and player. Bob Cousy's still around with us. I think he's 95 now. We'd like to talk to him, of course, if he's uh, sort of willing and able. Um, and just a, a, an amazing amount of um, uh, stories and uh, you call it a pivot, if you will. It's, it was a, a microcosm of the NBA's evolution at that time and, and uh, the story of Cincinnati as well. The Cincinnati Gardens plays a prominent role, no longer with us, um, uh, demolished in 2018. Uh, all of that and more in our uh, scintillating conversation with Jerry Schultz, uh, the author of two books, uh, well worth getting. We'll, we'll, we'll promote the heck out of him uh, at the tail end of the show. Uh, one's called Cincinnati's Basketball Royalty. A look back at 15 years uh, of Cincinnati Royals NBA basketball. Um, uh, that is available. It's self-published. It's available on Amazon or go to our website at Good Seats Still Available. Search up this episode number 262. And click on the link and we'll get a little referral love when you do that. Um, there's the paperback version. There is the Kindle version. Uh, and also Jerry has a, a brand new book out that came out just a couple of months back uh, in paperback called Jerry Lucas, Mr. Ohio Basketball. You can find that link and that book as well through our website and or on Amazon too. And uh, yes, Mr. Lucas will be uh, a prominent uh, component of our chat coming up in a few moments time. How about a promotional message? Well, geez, who else could it be this week? Frankly, we're, t- we're in Cincinnati. We're reveling in uh, one of the uh, uh, the golden uh, teams, if you will, of Cincinnati's professional history. So we've got to go back to oldschoolshirts.com. Uh, they're domiciled in Cincinnati, for God's sakes, and, and lots of great stuff. You know, again, that it's uh, pop culture history as well as uh, defunct and and forgotten sports team histories, all in um, quality T-shirt form. Uh, It's a trove. They keep adding more and more stuff all the time. Amazing logos, uh, amazing quality shirts, different colors and schema and all that kind of stuff. Uh, You can search them up by various collections, like you want to focus on bars or restaurants or amusement parks. Uh, you want to focus on just specific cities. Maybe there's a sport that you uh, want to sort of uh, dig deep into, perhaps even leagues themselves. Uh, but in our case, we're going to talk about the uh, Cincinnati collection and 13 pages of such on the website at Good Seats. Excuse me. Good Seats still available. That's our, our frigging site. Gee whiz. OldSchoolShirts.com. Just search up Cincinnati and you're going to find great memories. How about the Cincinnati Comets, uh, a previous episode of ours about the, the old American Soccer League? There's a shirt there devoted to them. Uh, do you remember, let's say the, uh, uncle Al show? Well, there are a couple of shows, a couple of shows, a couple of shirts there devoted to that. Um, all kinds of great memories. Maybe you remember the, um, uh, the Cincinnati stingers, uh, of the, uh, world hockey association, uh, all kinds of great Cincinnati memories. Uh, we're talking WLW, uh, t-shirts and all kinds of stuff at oldschoolshirts.com. Again, not just Cincinnati, pick your city. There's likely to be a, a dozen or more shirts 
focused on various memories from from a city that you might have grown up in or live in now uh, that you'd like to sort of benefit from. And of course, uh, do we have a promo code for you there so you can save some dough? You betcha. The promo code is good seats. Good seats. That's the promo code. 10% off all of your purchases. Oldschoolshirts.com in the beautiful city of Cincinnati. We thank P.F. Wilson and his pals for their continued sponsorship of the show. And let's go to Cincinnati now. Let's let's uh, point the uh, the GPS in that general direction. And uh, let's dial up our pal Jerry Schultz, who was with us just last week. Let's talk about the 15-year window of what is now the Sacramento Kings. This is when they were known as the Cincinnati Royals, a fascinating uh, chapter in uh, NBA basketball history. Here's our conversation, please. As always... Enjoy. Before we kind of get going and I sort of pepper you with questions, um, maybe you could give our audience a little bit of background as to sort of how you came to this story. And, you know, having read your introduction in particular, right, um, it it uh, it proverbially fits, right? It's the um, if you don't see a book about a particular topic and wonder why, well, Here's your opportunity to write one. And it looks like that's what you just did for this. Yeah, that is pretty much it. Um, I've uh, I've been reading about basketball uh, most of my life, uh, the pro game especially. And um, um, I live in the, the Cleveland area. And uh, the Royals actually used to play some games up here in the 60s. And um, I... Uh, I wanted to get a book and read more about those teams and um, which were actually very good for a while. And um, I was on the internet about 2007 or so, and I was searching around and I didn't see one. And I ended up talking to some people online in um, Cincinnati and elsewhere. And I found out there wasn't one. So um, I decided to take a shot at it and write a book. And I'm guessing some of this had to do with fandom, uh, perhaps when growing up or maybe introduced to, to, you know, pro sports and maybe, uh, the Royals in particular at that time. I mean, if anything, we've learned over the last four or five years of doing the show, right? A lot of interest for teams, especially ones that don't exist anymore, even just eras of teams that still do. Um, especially if you're a guy, an all American kind of type type guy, uh-huh. Um, there's a certain period of your life, right? From, I don't know, ages eight through maybe 14, 15 or so where you're impressionable. And if you're inclined towards sports at all, the teams that you go and see for the first time and root for kind of get kind of etched in your memories, maybe ongoing. Oh, no doubt about that. Uh, the early seventies was just an amazing time in sports because you had, um, you had multiple leagues. Uh, in in some of the sports, uh, the NFL had just had a merger. Uh, in the early '70s, you still had the NBA and the ABA, and so yeah, it was a great time to be a kid. So, I, what, when you decided that you were going to sort of go after this story and kind of fill in the what 15 years or so of the, of the Royals in Cincinnati, what what did you th- years. what did you mm-hmm. think you knew going in and and you know, what, how did you sort of approach it? I mean, was it going to be a linear kind of year by year kind of thing? Or like, how did you think you were going to approach this, this topic? Because clearly the team had moved on and then some, and obviously had a very peripatetic history even prior to, right? So 
it, yes. in many respects, the narrowing just to those 15 years, it, it's hard not to ignore what came before it and obviously what, what's come since. Well, I, I knew some things about it, you know, just being a, a young fan. Um, I knew uh, um, a lot about some of the players that they had. Um, Oscar Robertson, Jerry Lucas, Nate Archibald. So, and I knew that they had been very competitive in the, in the mid sixties. So I did know some things about it, but um, it seemed to me that the, the, the most practical approach to writing it was to write it chronologically because um, you know, the stories all feed into each other, you know um, you know, they're, they're not independent of each other. They, you know, they come from each other. So I wanted to get to the beginning and even before the beginning you know, to, to lay the foundation for those stories. Well, t- maybe give our audience a bit of a sense of sort of the prelude a little bit, like like how this team wound up in Cincinnati in 1957, because this was a team prior to that that had uh, very deep roots, and perhaps now through the Sacramento Kings is one of the oldest uh, persistent uh, and uh, uninterrupted franchises in the history of the league. Um, in all of it, sort of the predecessors, right? The the feeders that became the NBA and even the sort of semi-pro uh, corporate teams and stuff. Uh, and in a somewhat out-of-the-way place, when you look at the, the history of this team, Rochester, New York, of all places. Right. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Now, once you dig into the history, it becomes very interesting stuff to see that even something like pro basketball sort of loosely follows um, the flow of the history of the country itself, you know, um, Rochester basketball emerged right after world war one. And, uh, the Royals came into existence right after world war two in Rochester. And Rochester was the kind of town that would probably give basketball a chance. Uh, basketball was not a major sport. It was sort of the the indoor soccer or arena football of that time. And so you were going to secondary locations, not Buffalo, you know, but further north to a city like Rochester to get an opportunity for something like this. Yeah. They, and they were also part of, you know, back in the time, I used to say uh, 1945 or so, right? This thing called the National right. Basketball League, which itself was a forerunner of uh, the Basketball Association of America, which depending on one's view of history is the is fully incorporated into the NBA's history because that then merged and so there's a fascinating sort of tributary that uh, mm-hmm. a semi-pro Rochester team sort of kind of evolved into pro Rochester basketball and then ultimately into the NBA but um, but clearly uh, a strong enough franchise to to stick around despite its quote unquote secondary market nature at that time well yeah they um they had remarkable success really uh, based on a couple of things uh, during the war years, you know, uh, 1945, because, uh, well, they, they had a, a really committed leader in uh, Les Harrison and they were able to land uh, what we would call today a superstar player in Bob Davies. Uh, and, and so these were the kind of things that allowed them to achieve an early success that a lot of their contemporaries, even bigger cities and better funded teams weren't able to uh, achieve. And so the Royals were really a remarkable story in the 40s and even into the 50s before they came to Cincinnati. 
So but by the time uh, the 1950s roll along, um, give us a sense of sort of why uh, the team was now not very long uh further destined for for Rochester and why Cincinnati because the team was doing pretty well uh, like in the NBA in 1951 they won the NBA title um right you know not only not more than six years later uh they bolted for Cincinnati what was the appeal of Cincinnati the problems perhaps with Rochester as a market and uh, I guess the question is why why Cincinnati for this team that's a great question um the, the thing is, is that the Royals didn't have much of a home arena, which tells you kind of how um, small time uh, pro basketball was back then. But they played in an arena, uh, the Edgerton um, Sports Center, I think it was called. And um, it was 4,200 seats. And uh, the city wouldn't expand it. And so there wasn't any public money to improve it. So that was all the team could draw. Even had these top teams, uh, you know, that were beating the Lakers and winning the NBA title, 4,200 was what they could pack in. And um, they tried like heck to do something with it. And, um, but the team was already uh, far along in debt in Rochester, uh, which in 1956 also got a hockey team, the, the Rochester Americans of the American Hockey League. So they had competition locally. And then um, they were developing uh, either by design or just by random chance, a a roster of players that were regionally well-known in Cincinnati. And and that included a guy I had a chance to talk to about the book, uh, Jack Twyman. So go ahead. Tell us more a little bit about Jack Twyman for those who don't know. Um, Jack Twyman, uh, boy, uh, a remarkable figure. Um, he, uh, he grew up in Pittsburgh, which, uh, he didn't like to talk about, <laughs> but, uh, when, when he went to, um, the university of Cincinnati and, uh, he had, um, a, a great high school career in Pittsburgh, but, um, he was a, a Bearcat star and, uh, he took a real liking to the city and he lived there. and. Um, uh, he developed probably the best jump shot in the league for a number of years. And he became a very saleable star. And um, he was one of the regionally well-known players in Cincinnati uh, that was able to encourage a transfer of the team uh, from Rochester, New York, to that city. Well, he wasn't he wasn't the reason they moved, but certainly he was kind of a well, he had just been with Rochester for a little while, but certainly was a built in local draw. Right. uh, Versus relocating and then finding local players. Right. Oh, I agree. Uh, The major reason was was the team's uh, dire financial situation. Uh, But but Twyman had a a real buzz uh, with local fans and he was already sort of a draw for the team. Um, they actually played a game in Cincinnati in February of 1957 against uh, what were then called the Fort Wayne Pistons. And um, the city took a real liking to the team and to Twyman in particular and um, really made the transfer of the Royals to Cincinnati unnatural. 
That's interesting. Um, there's a lot to unpack uh, on Twyman. Um, uh, just a couple of points. So number one, obviously, is a, a, as a player, is in the Basketball Hall of Fame. He's also in the College Basketball Hall of Fame as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, his number's been retired a ton of times. Um, but he's also, uh, uh, and we kind of jump around on this on the show. So, but he's also an interesting figure in conjunction with another very well-known player from this era. He uh, sure is. By the guy named uh, Maurice Stokes. And maybe a little bit about sort of that relationship and, and who uh, Maurice Stokes was in all of this, because certainly a, a memorable name for a number of different reasons in this this period of the franchise's history. Well, yeah, he, he is most well-known for his association with Stokes. And when I spoke to Mr. Twyman, um, he was very effusive on that point. I mean, uh, in the 1960s, um, uh, his activity in basketball was very secondary to that. Uh, but uh, Stokes, for the uninformed, was just uh, an amazing 1950s player. He was, he was really a playground player um, who sort of uh, played all, uh, you know, played almost all the positions at once. He had uh, this amazing ability to handle the ball almost in the way that someone like Magic Johnson would handle it. But he was six foot seven and 235 pounds. So he was a bull on the backboards and he could play, he could, he could go down into the block and play center. And he was as good as most of the centers he played against. And uh, he had an open court kind of athleticism. And as great as Twyman was as a draw and as a shooter, um, Stokes may have been uh, the single best player in the NBA for at least a few years. But also a tragic figure. Um, and no doubt. one that's uh, uh, etched in this team's history. Uh, and sort of don't want to get on a sort of a, a maudlin sort of uh, track here, but uh, it's certainly an important sort of moment in this, in this, uh, in this story and the relationship between the two going forward, of course. Oh, I, I completely agree. Um, there's a, a chapter dedicated just to Stokes really in the book. And it was one that I, I really wanted to take the time to research thoroughly uh, because the, the most perplexing thing of course, is, is trying to figure out what exactly happened to him. But at the very end of the 1957-58 season, uh, the Royals had one last road game to play before the playoffs, which were already set, and they had to go to Minneapolis. And it it was a meaningless game. Uh, The Lakers were out of it. Uh, There was really nothing on the table, but he went up there, and it was the, the beginning of a real tragedy. Uh, in which Stokes became permanently hospitalized for the rest of his life. Yeah, I think depending on on, on how you sort of read it, he injured himself um, during a game. I think he struck his head. Um, I don't know if it was on the backboard or on the on the floor, and he was unconscious. Uh, I guess just uh, chasing a rebound, sort of in the in the play in the gameplay. Um, but I think maybe some of the confusion that you're sort of referencing was also that. I guess he he came back to play in the game, you know, the old smelling salts thing. You know, we're talking about the sixth right. the after all. Um, but it seems like, based on what I've read and some of what you've wrote, written too, that uh, it might have been exacerbated by sort of a pressurized or depressurized airplane trip thereafter in terms of travel. That that's right. Added to the to the 
I guess what you would today call concussion or concussion protocol or the lack of understanding of such at that, that, that day and age. I, I think that's, that's all pretty much on the money. Um, at least for insurance purposes. Um, and by the way, um, uh, Mr. Twyman was an insurance agent for Aetna. So when he got into uh, compensation with the state of Ohio, it was very important to trace what happened to Mr. Stokes to the fall and where he hit his head on the floor uh, in Minneapolis, at least for insurance purposes. But uh, there may have been a number of factors. Uh, the airplane cabin pressure was one. Um, there was a flu or um, I don't want to say meningitis, but that kind of, of situation which was going around the team um, as the playoffs were approaching. And there was at least one other player who was sick. And so they're thinking that it's possible a virus was part of the situation. Uh, in conjunction to, you know, a possible concussion and then the airplane as well. And Jack Twyman essentially wound up becoming his caretaker after after all this happened. Right. I mean, you also remember, by the way, not only Twyman, but but Stokes is a himself a basketball Hall of Fame player as well as a college basketball Hall of Fame member. Oh, and, yeah. and a standout stellar. I mean, you know, multiple all star uh uh, uh, teams, Rookie of the Year in 1956. He only had a playing career of what, from I guess 55 through 58, but only maybe three seasons or so. But still, yeah, well mm -hmm. regarded, right? Oh, no, without a doubt. Um, he, he was a, a, a great um, uh, playground-style talent and athlete. And he, he was a very good defensively as well. I didn't mention that. But um, it, it's his association with Twyman was not initially one um, that was friendly. It was actually, they were two Pittsburgh rivals who ended up on the same pro team and um, they had a difficult association. But once this happened to Stokes, uh, the dynamic of that changed. And um, Twyman in one of the most amazing stories in sports ever, in my opinion, uh, ended up becoming uh, the guardian uh, for this fallen star and guided him through the rest of his life or most of it through the 1960s. Yeah, and there was even a movie made in the early 70s called Maury, which um, I've been dying to find, and it's not in any streaming service that I can find thus far, but I'm sure it will come around. But um, yes, yeah, basically uh, the, the story that kind of just uh, uh, kind of focuses on that uh, I wouldn't call it a buddy film, right? But it, in some respects, in, no. many, in many cases, it kind of, you know, was a a relationship that, um, you know, is inspiring and uh, and and goes beyond the sport and to the point where now the um, the NBA recognizes both of them with something they call the Teammate of the Year Award, which they give to uh, the league's, uh, I guess, what they call sort of the ideal teammate uh, award, and um, you know, their legacies, if you will, are entwined and. Um, and forever memorialized, which is, you know, uh, perhaps belatedly, I think the NBA didn't bring it in until about 2013 or so, but um, still something mm -hmm. that uh, is at least uh, ongoing in terms of memory of both of these of these stellar stars, players and, and people. Yeah, that's true. That trophy did come into existence. I think it was 2012 and it, it may be the biggest legacy uh, of the Cincinnati teams. 
And that was really part of what made researching the team so interesting is it had stories like this, although there's very few stories like this in general, um, which made the Royals team really distinctive, not just among NBA teams, but all of sports in that you had a story where, you know, two teammates ended up in a situation like this. And one was actually the guardian of the other. It's just really amazing. I think most people, though, probably if they do remember the Cincinnati version of what are now the Sacramento Kings, the Royals, um, certainly remember, I guess you could characterize it as an era dominated by Mm -hmm. the big O, Oscar Robertson, luckily still with us. Um, I don't want to sort of, you know, uh, simplify it too much, but it's hard to deny the literal and figurative outsized uh, contributions of Oscar Robertson circa 1960 for this team? Well, without question. And in fact, you know, it's another story with the team is his arrival to the Royals was actually absolutely crucial to their even being able to continue as a franchise. Um, in 1915, they'd only been there a few years and they were already stumbling there in Cincinnati. You're saying, Oh, with, without a doubt, their very first year in 57, 58, they ended up losing money. Uh, The Harrison brothers from Rochester, they were livid. Uh, They put the team up for sale. And and that led to a number of situations uh, over the next few years where the the league actually and, and the city actually passed the hat to keep the team going. And one of the great stories about the team is that in 1959, you could buy a season ticket to see the Royals for 1960, the following year, when Oscar Robertson showed up. So they were actually selling him a year in advance of his arrival because he was a territorial pick for the team. All right, before we get into Robertson specifically, why, though, was the franchise so wobbly so quickly after having moved from Rochester? Because, I mean, you'd think there would have been. I don't know, some level of due diligence about a new market and why. And the Cincinnati Gardens, which was kind of the hub, really, of indoor sports and in the city, it would seem like they had infrastructure and maybe an untilled soil as a market to, to to kind of take things to the next level from sort of, if you will, second-tier Rochester. Yeah, um, I looked into this, too. And, and, and initially, everything started off very sunny for the team and the city, uh, the local baseball Reds were supportive, and and there was a place within a strong uh, college basketball community for the Royals. Um, but the thing is, is that 1957 was also the year that um, Robertson emerged uh, with the college uh, Cincinnati Bearcats uh, in December, and so they were actually found themselves competing with the Bearcats for basketball fans in Cincinnati. And for a number of years, they actually lost that battle. And it even continued after uh, Robertson joined the team. It was uh, very interesting stuff. Interesting. So clearly, so as you're hinting, right, the, I guess, kismet, the overlap of of Robertson as a local standout on the college scene, it almost seems like what you're maybe intimating is that the team almost needed to absorb that 
if you will, local phenomenon into the pro game and go out of their way, I guess, to try to make it worth his while and the league's while and with the other teams to get him to play for the local team on the NBA front. Yeah, his signing was actually one of the most important uh, the league saw during that era because the NBA at this time was only eight teams and half of them really didn't make any money. And the worst of those was the Royals, which, you know, who had just relocated uh, with a bag of debt from Rochester. And um, after Maurice Stokes went down, they went through two brutal losing seasons. Uh, This was a team that had a hard time putting a thousand fans in the gardens to see this team. And so they were deep in debt when he showed up. And uh, yeah, he had a lot of leverage to sign his rookie contract. Well, I mean, how? I mean, I, I'm I'm ignorant as to sort of what the uh, called the draft or or how players got from college to the various NBA teams at that time. Um, I, I got to think there were some, I don't know, machinations and 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 other uh, things behind the scenes to to engineer his coming to Cincinnati. Or I, I doubt he could just sort of walk over the walk across the street and just sign a contract. For about 10 years, uh, the NBA employed something called a territorial draft pick. There you go. And it was, it was actually um, created by one of the league's big four leaders, uh, Eddie Gottlieb, who ran the Philadelphia franchise. And he came up with it so that he could maintain the rights to local star Wilt Chamberlain, who had moved on to Kansas uh, when he started his, pro career, uh, his college career. So he wanted to make sure that he had the rights to Chamberlain as a pro and he came up with this concept. And so uh, the Royals were actually uh, just as big a practitioner of this. And uh, they used the territorial pick uh, to to make sure that Robertson, the local Bearcat, was going to be a Royal. Uh, They also used it to secure Jerry Lucas, who had played uh, high school ball in that area. All right. Before we get to Lucas, just just let's uh, let's obsess a little bit about the Big O. Um, uh, to say he was a dominant player, not only for the Royals, uh, but you know, this is obviously clearly uh, one of uh, the league's all-time best players and and well-regarded, um, you know, uh, champions of all time. Um, explain. I mean, we're, we're talking about a good solid ten years in Cincinnati. I mean, look, if this guy can't sort of make the franchise uh, somewhat popular or uh, a must-see. There's probably no other guy that could be doing this at this this time for the Royals. I I don't think so. Um, To kind of understand Robertson in the 1960s is to sort of appreciate a player who had a level of respect on his team that maybe hasn't been matched. I mean, you sort of have to think about like a Michael Jordan or a LeBron James, where this is the guy, he's going to have the ball, uh, and he's going to bring it down, and he's going to run the offense. I mean, he really was the quarterback. But he he was so multi-skilled, and I don't think he gets enough credit for being such an intelligent player um, that he was able to adjust in varying situations and uh, one of the stories I came across in, the, in researching the team in the 60s is that there wasn't an opponent 
that Red Auerbach of the Boston Celtics respected more than Oscar Robertson, and that says a lot. Well, yet, though, the team itself, right, and we'll, we can fill in some of the other other names that sort of uh, uh, were, were part of those teams, um, they were, I, I guess, I, mean, I think, you know, I think in the abstract, people would sort of say uh, relatively, uh, you know, middling uh, during the, the course of the 60s. But I think that, frankly, denies not only just the sheer outsized power and skill and, and stardom, uh, of a person like Oscar Robertson. But I mean, they were competitive, certainly in the first part of that decade, right? Where, you know, they were a consistent playoff team. Now they didn't get past the their division, either the finals or the division semis, but, um, you know, they were at least a competitive team and in the mix, right? Um, yet never sort of getting over that sort of hump into, I guess, what you would call sort of the uh, the champion, the championship sort of zone of, of life. Well, after Robertson's arrival, uh, the team became very organized and, and uh, the rest of the team fell into roles around him um, and really became a, 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 a really impressive offensive organization. Uh, one of the things about the Royals is that they were probably the best offensive shooting passing team of the 1960s. A lot of people don't know that. It started with Robertson, but it was also his ability to get people the ball. Twyman was an outstanding shot. Uh, they had other great shooters on the team, uh, like Lucas and Adrian Smith. Uh, Wayne Embry became very effective uh, in a role with the team where he was able to set picks and then catch passes around the basket. And this was a team that, that made a high percentage of their shots as a group. And and they became a real contender very quickly. Yeah, I think people forget that. Uh, I mean, really, throughout the bulk of the '60s, I mean, you're talking about. I mean, the guys who were the MVPs. There are only three players really who are who are in that mix. They just kind of rotated. It was Bill Russell, Will Chamberlain, and 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 Oscar Robertson. Um, mm -hmm. I mean, this guy was that dominant. You say Michael Jordan. You say LeBron James. I mean, that is not an understatement in terms of his prowess. That's why he's the top 75, tops 50. Frankly, top ten, maybe if you sort of oh, yeah. count down the numbers, right? Um, uh, but also some of the characters around him, though, right? I mean, um, uh, Jack McMahon came into the in the scene as as the new coach back in uh, in the sixty three sixty four season. Uh, they were up to fifty five uh, and twenty five record, right? Which was um, mm -hmm. things to be seemed to be pretty much uh, clicking in into gear. But I mean, this the, I, again, Robertson's a guy like I mean, think about it. He's 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 like averaging triple doubles like for the first five seasons of his NBA career. I mean, that's like insanely unheard of today. Um, uh, and, but still, uh, what about these supporting players and, and maybe some shifting coaches? Um, what was it about the team that couldn't sort of get them over the hump to that next level in the playoffs? Do you think? Well, well, they were a great offensive team. Um, and, and, the Boston Celtics um, emerged as a defensive team, especially after the retirement of players like uh, Bill Sharman and Bob Cousy. That became their focus. So you know, when those two teams played, it was the best offense versus the best defense. So what what the Royals needed was that maybe that extra defensive figure uh, to, to help them around the basket or around the perimeter. And, but really, the saddest portion of the story 
is that the team simply wasn't run that well. Um, when they brought in Jack McMahon as a coach, um, they did it with a very brief ownership um, who signed both he and Jerry Lucas, and then the guy was gone. And then the managerial direction of the team uh, became a very different one, unfortunately. All right, we'll get to that in a second. Talk about Jerry Lucas, because obviously you have a um, a new book specifically out on him, which will certainly mm-hmm. yes, sir, as well. Um, but he he was also another uh, regional, uh, you know, local sort of pick and or absorption by uh, by the Royals, and, and arguably was sort of the the yin to to Oscar Robertson's yang, if you will, for the team coming into what nineteen? I guess he came in sixty three or so. Jerry did. Six. 63 with the Royals. Um, Jerry is um, also a, a, a remarkable all-time figure. I mean, when you're talking about him and your and Oscar Robertson, you're actually talking about two of the biggest stars of that era, two of the top ten. And um, Jerry was uh, huge in Ohio. He was probably... Uh, the biggest Ohio star of that time, probably the biggest one before LeBron James. And he was a huge star at Ohio State um, to the point where he may have even been bigger than Robertson and um, was a a very high-profile rookie. Um, But his attitude about playing pro ball was such that he he really took a very team-oriented and secondary approach to helping Robertson and the Royals uh, become a a more successful team. And in fact, uh, the 55 win team uh, you mentioned, that was his rookie year. So he had a big impact immediately. Yeah. Despite these two outsized talents and to your point, top 75, top 50, top 10, right. You know, NBA history, Mm -hmm. depending on your bar room, uh, how many beers you've had and and your discussion. (laughs) Um, uh, it's clear that, um, there was something else dynamically that was not clicking to the, to the level to, to get them over that sort of playoff hump. And I think maybe you sort of hinted at some of the, the, the ownership structures of it, but I'm, I'm wondering about the, the play on the court. I mean, clearly some, some very strong players, not sort of at the, the caliber of these two per se, but, um, uh, I, 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 there's clearly something that's just, that's lacking, I guess. I, I wonder if it it is coaching, if it was the distractions of a somewhat unstable ownership. I mean, you also hinted at it, too, before. Maybe this has something to do with it. Um, around the mid of the decade, right, 66, 67-ish, um, it, it almost feels to me like the, the Royals are becoming much more, either by design or by necessity, more of a regional kind of approach because they were playing in places like Dayton, and Columbus and Cleveland, as you mentioned earlier, right? So mm-hmm. something's not going right there as, as quote unquote, the Cincinnati Royals. Well, um, part of it was the nature of the city at this time. Um, and so um, there was a certain uh, left-handed appreciation for the team um, between the uh, Oscars rookie season and Jerry's rookie season, which is, 1960 to 1963. And so for a while, attendance actually went down for a couple of years before Jerry showed up. And, um, and so uh, they were the smallest city in the league. 
out of uh, what was now nine teams with Chicago coming over. And, and so there was a real financial concern, but, but basketball in this era was, was generally like this for, for most of the teams. And so they utilized secondary cities, secondary sites, especially during the winter to kind of help uh, juice their attendance with novelty games in a city like Dayton or Columbus or Cleveland. And so the Royals were uh, successful in using that approach. Yeah, almost a little bit ahead of its time, right? Where I think right now that's actually kind of a, a, a desirable way to keep growing your your stature is to kind of regionalize your your um, your appeal, if you will, beyond just sort of the city limits of the of the city that you're domiciled in. Oh, I completely agree. And uh, it's, it's sort of a shame to see that a lot of these teams today don't utilize that. Uh, when there's an opportunity to re-engage fans and and develop greater interest in the team. Now, some of this also is interesting, too, because it overlaps into another dynamic we've sort of discovered over the years, right, which is uh, certain cities of certain sizes over the the decades, especially with some of the challenger leagues that you sort of mentioned before about the 1970s and, you know, markets and expansions and all those kinds of things, right? Uh, in the background of this, right, is the Cincinnati pro sports landscape, largely dominated by minor league uh teams but and obviously the uh the reds being you know obviously one of the oldest uh, baseball teams right but other than that right indoor winter teams right no pro basketball until the royals arrived no pro hockey still at the nhl level uh and only uh was 1968 when the afl in its really last sort of full independent year uh did they Mm -hmm. cover cincinnati for the nfl in football, right? So this is also a bit of a story of a city that, I mean, you're mentioning is the smallest market, right? Obviously today it's a different story, but um, it's almost, um, you know, uh, pro sports as the sort of um, imprimatur of major league, right? Status for one for one city or or region. And um, I, I don't know, maybe Cincinnati in the, in the 60s wasn't sort of, I mean, certainly on, it was on the, ascension for sure and you just wonder um you know if they could have lasted a little bit longer given the arrival of the Bengals and 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 just just market growth whether they could have further succeeded but clearly that wasn't the case by the time Robertson and and Lucas had left and and the franchise was I guess scrounging for for relevance not only in the city but in the in the in the region well, yeah, there's, I think there is something to be said um, for that. Um, with, with the city of, of Cincinnati, uh, they were a little bit behind the curve, I think. Um, you know, one of the guys I spoke to about the book was uh, Wild Man Walker, who was a radio host uh, in the city. And uh, he talked about how everybody was a Browns fan for year, uh, you know, for years. And it, it took so long you know, for motive, uh, momentum to build for the team to get an AFL franchise, you know, when that was something they probably could have had earlier. And um, unfortunately, with the Royals, they just made some difficult decisions uh, that hampered, you know, their opportunities for marketability and success there. You know, there were times uh, when they didn't have a, a local television contract, you know, and things like that will, you know, will definitely hurt you.
what's this? Binge-sesh. Binge-sesh. Hey, all of a sudden, I'm Buddy Hackett. Binge-sesh. It's a great podcast. For sure it is. It's the uh, uh, brand new podcast from the Los Angeles Times. Again, it's called Binge-sesh. Thank you, Buddy, but that's how you pronounce it. Uh, And why should you listen to it? Well, hey, did you listen to our episode with Jeff Perlman back in the day? We talked about the USFL. Well, as you know, Jeff is a uh, prolific sports uh, nonfiction writer, and his book, Winning Time, was the impetus and the uh, inspiration for this wildly successful and controversial at that HBO series, Winning Time, about the magic era Showtime Los Angeles Lakers, the team that changed America and the NBA for sure. Uh, And Binge Sesh from the Los Angeles Times uh, is the place to, it's a companion, I would say, uh, to the the great series. Uh, If you want to really hear the inside story and the real uh, origins and the real uh, people behind the Skyhooks and the Slam Dunks and the Jerry Buss Empire and the uh, LA Forum and uh, all that was going on in that period of time, Magic himself, all the various stars and and uh, ancillary cast of characters. Um, It's about the basketball, but it's about so much more than just that. You'll hear from actors and TV writers, professors, experts from the LA Times, people who were there, and it's a fun romp. And it's hosted, co-hosted actually, by the LA Times' TV editor, Matt Brennan, and professional basketball player, Kareem Maddox. You may remember him from his collegiate days as a star standout at Princeton, and a current member, I think still, of the US uh, national three by three team. Uh, which is now an Olympic sport, too. Give it a listen. Again, it's called Binge Sesh, S-E-S-H, Binge Sesh, uh, from the LA Times. You can find it uh, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. It's a hoot. You'll enjoy it. And um, we appreciate their sponsorship of our show. And now back to it and our conversation. How about the Cincinnati Gardens in particular? Was there anything unique or special or challenging, I guess, perhaps about the the arena in which you were playing? I mean, you mentioned it's relative. Well, I, 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 I'm just curious as to, obviously, that's where the minor league hockey stuff was going on. Um, mm-hmm. Good, bad, indifferent, uh, non-factor or a factor in its inability. Actually, uh, the Gardens were a big factor in Cincinnati getting the NBA franchise. And in fact, the whole momentum of gaining the Royals started uh, with interest in the city in gaining the first ever NBA expansion franchise. That's what eventually led to the Royals coming to the city. Uh, But uh, the garden was, uh, the gardens were still fairly new uh, when the Royals showed up. It had just opened in 1949. Um, It did have the American Hockey League. A lot of people forget that the AHL was actually, you know, loosely comparable to the NHL for years. And so they had the Mohawks team, but, you know, then that team moved on. And and so, yeah, it became minor league hockey and college basketball. Uh, But the Gardens were an asset. Well, the Gardens were also where these – uh, battles between what Cincinnati and Xavier and, and, and the like and on the college level were going on too, right? That's right. The Crosstown Shootout. Uh, it was one of the first promotions for basketball in the city. And that was like, uh, well, it was actually before uh, the, the Royals showed up. But um, 
you know, uh, people forget that there was a, a, a scandal period in the game in the early 1950s. And so uh, basketball as a, a, a whole took a big hit between 1950 and 1953, especially in the East, but also in cities like Cincinnati, where it took some time to actually bring the game back. And as hinted earlier, and we've seen this in other sort of locations too, as in our exploits of the basketball scene, is that, I mean, would it be fair to say, even despite uh, a Jerry Lucas, an Oscar Robertson, an all-star game in 66, uh, competitive teams in the early, at least early part of the 60s, that the, the college game was really more the it thing than the NBA variety at that time? Or is that too simple? Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, and that's that's something a lot of people today don't uh, remember or consider, you know, in comparing all of these different teams in different eras. Uh, the college game was actually bigger than the pro game, uh, at least into the mid-60s uh, across much of the country, certainly in Ohio. And so the Royals were actually up against that when they were uh, promoting the team, even with both Robertson and Lucas, they they were actually competing with the college game in the state. Yeah, and, and this is also a time where, and this obviously went into the 70s as well, the NBA, uh, I, I guess you could say this was probably, of the quote-unquote big four, was probably the most unstable of the of the big sports leagues in the country. I, mean, oh, I, I would say, oh yeah, the NBA yeah. ran fourth for a long time. Yeah, and, and it was sort of a, I mean, which is odd. I mean, but it's, um, you know, you look at sort of the NHL, right? They didn't discover expansion until 1967. But, you know, for, for their sake, I mean, those six teams for decades, right, were solid, uh, centrally, if you will, controlled by the overlords of the sport, right? It was, it was strong to the extent that the six markets were, you know, uh, you know, stable and all that stuff. But the NBA, it still was... Uh, trying to find its footing. That doesn't mean like people, uh, uh, teams like the Knicks and and the Boston Celtics weren't sort of, you know, uh, gigantic draws in their own right. But you know, you're mentioning a, a team despite some some outsized talent uh, in the Cincinnati Royals still can't having a hard time get, making a go of it for various reasons. How about the ownership though? I think you, we kind of danced around it, but the ownership of this team uh, from its days coming into Cincinnati uh, till its uh, departure in the early 70s, which we'll get to, um, that doesn't strike me as being, uh, the word stable doesn't sort of come into mind for that either. There were kind of multiple ownership issues and transitions and and entities, I think, right? Oh, yeah. And, and they demonstrate that, in, uh, that instability. But uh, the ownership's uh, of the team are themselves a, a great set of stories. And it, and it begins with Harrison, uh, who um, brought the team over from Rochester, and he's a Hall of Famer. Yeah, he's a basketball and, uh, guy. He's not, an outsize, he's not an outside money guy, right? From Oh, no, not at all. Uh, the guy was completely devoted to the game from the 1920s forward. Just an amazing figure. But, uh, you know, he, he couldn't make a buck. Uh, in the 50s with it, and so ended up selling the team. And in fact, uh, for a while, they didn't have a buyer for it. And it, it was a it was a very uh, cautious situation 
where the NBA talked uh, the Garden's ownership into taking on the team, uh, knowing full well that they didn't make any money. And, and so there was almost kind of a public corporation for the Royals um, led by uh, Thomas Wood. And then uh, eventually um, a Bearcats booster, Warren Hensel, ran it for about a year before it was bought by another uh, amazing sports figure. And that was uh, the concessions king, uh, Louis Jacobs. So Jacobs, is he kind of the first real money guy maybe then in the ownership ranks? Uh, of, of those, no question about it. In fact, um, Jacobs very quietly and, and secretly may have been the richest uh, owner figure in the league. That's how much money he had, but he didn't spend it on the Royals. Um, he, he was an investment guy. He, he loaned out money. He was sort of a private banker. Yeah, interesting. And one of his sons is, uh, I think, the owner of the Bruins the, uh, today uh, and, and one of the world's richest uh, people, Jeremy Jacobs yeah. Sr. Um, but, mm-hmm. he, but untimely, though, Lewis died in 68. And it almost, I don't know if this was the reason, but it almost seems like it was the beginning of the unwinding of, of whatever this era of the franchise was. Well, I, I agree. Um, it, it, first of all, it, it, it surprised people in that, you know, with the, the settlement of the team ownership, they sort of got a peek into the family books. And, um, and so that started a, a whole movement of things that I think was probably the biggest driver in the Royals relocating out of Cincinnati. But um, his, his, one of his sons um, ended up being, um, I guess you could say, a figurehead owner for the team. And he knew very little about it and, and actually brought very little to the table. And so that led to, you know, things like the arrival of Bob Cousy and really the end of the franchise in Cincinnati. Well, all right, let's talk about that. Right. So Bob Cousy, you know, obviously himself. Yeah, here we go. Yet again, another legend in, in, in all timeness, if you will, in the NBA. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and, and for, for our soccer aficionados, he even ran the American soccer league in the late 1970s. We can believe that having no, no That's nothing, right. nothing about soccer, but I digress. Um, <laughs> so at this time, so he, Cousy comes in, at what the behest of what Jeremy or Max Jacobs or or maybe some combination thereof these sons? How, how does yeah, he um, Cincinnati besides taking a bus or perhaps an airplane? Well, again, timing is is really important. Um, he had been um, a, a, an overachieving college coach at Boston College for several years to this point, but he, he was starting to get into a little bit of trouble off the court because he was found uh, in the company of some people who were, who had known ties to uh, sports gambling. And of course that that's an immediate uh, eyebrow raiser with basketball. It's an amazing story within the game, uh, the gambling component. Yeah. And by the way, that that could never happen again now, could it? <laughs> so put up let's put a push, push pin on that right because i think it's very interesting to see this today's generation and all the uh, wellspring of enthusiasm for for gambling and prop bets and uh, mobile device you know all that stuff and 
And you're touching on a nerve which obviously goes much deeper and much more robustly, college as well. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, just to know how third rail-ish this was back in the day, to think that something like that can't happen again and perhaps even more uh, in a more sinister manner today. But again, this is that's the old man yelling at the clouds. Sorry, I didn't mean to digress. <laughs> well, in 1968 or nine, uh, Cousy uh, suddenly felt motivated uh, to consider joining the pro ranks and and taking some of the money that was being passed around. Uh, the ABA was trying to do something uh, with the team that was going to become the New York Nets, uh, today's Brooklyn Nets, and uh, Nobody threw more money at him or more interest at him than the Royals did, uh, partly out of desperation. They really wanted to do something uh, to rejuvenate the franchise, and they felt that bringing this figure in, this legendary figure, uh, would make the Royals credible and saleable again. But uniquely, not only was he lured in as a coach— he actually came back to play for a year. So yeah. explain the insanity or, or maybe the, the intrigue around that. Well, um, you know, uh, again, the novelty of having him at all was was supposed to engage the city or the state. And, um, and, and so the idea was maybe to throw him out there for a few minutes in the fourth quarter, you know, as part of the incentive of, of seeing the Royals you know, where you could actually see Bob uh, for a few minutes on the court. So it was supposed to be uh, a ticket incentive for uh, for fans, uh, you know, to come out and see the team. And that he, actually happened. Yeah, he did play, what, I guess it was six or seven games. Yeah. Um, looking at his stats here, uh, averaging about f- almost five minutes a game for those seven, those seven games. And... Mm-hmm. Um, he made a hundred percent of his free throws. I don't know how many, but um, that is saying. <laughs> not many. But the, yeah, but the, not many. Probably that's right. Probably not. Uh, he was probably wasn't uh, driving down the lane for a, <laughs> a quick two. <tour. laughs> um, so, but but he but he's also and obviously revered in Boston and, and a legendary player and and and, and name and all that stuff. Um, but he was tied to and maybe directly responsible for. The departure of two of those aforementioned stars, though, right in in as the decade wore out, right? Oh, without question. And how do those he, happen? How do those happen? And how, um, again, how do those get? How does that get received by the the quote unquote fan base? Probably not great. Well, yeah, it, it was a case, you know, in bringing him in at all. Uh, which, by the way, you know, with the Royals, this guy was a bitter rival. The whole Celtics Royals wars. Right. They were yeah. the ones preventing the Royals from kind of getting to that next level. Right. So there you go. Right. So the, the, it, it was it was being a bit tone deaf to bring the guy in, you know, at all. Um, but as far as, you know, uh, you know, seeing that there might be any incentive to see him play, um, they, they missed the boat on that as well. And then there was actually some ongoing history. Uh, between Cousy with both of those star players, Robertson and Lucas, that he carried into the city. And um, the, his story with Robertson uh, was in particular very remarkable. It was They were rivals within the team. So des- describe that rivalry. I mean, I, the play... Uh, well, mm-hmm. well uh, they were both 
presidents of the NBA Player Union, which Cousy started in 1954, but Robertson was able to advance uh, in the 60s. And that they were both uh, what, you know, they were considered floor leaders for the respective teams. Uh, you know, Cousy quarterbacking the Celtics, Robertson uh, quarterbacking the Royals, uh, who at, at, at one point at least, uh, were the two best teams in the game for uh, several years. And um, Robertson is passing him in all-time assists. He's a, he's a much better scorer than Kuzi was. And, and, and Robertson was very appreciated by Auerbach, as I said earlier. And so these were, you know, things that, that Kuzi was very competitive about. And, and the Royals team, um, the management of the team ended up taking a very adversarial view of Robertson and, and bringing Cousy in was actually part of that. And, and, and driving him out as part of that dynamic. Well, Did they wanted to the franchise. It, it, it was, it was a, a matter of authority. I think, um, you know, this was a player who was, uh, you know, making contract demands and the Royals were not, um, they were not a glamorous spendy team. They were very tight with their nickels. And this was a guy who could command pay raises at the end of each season. And so they really wanted to rein him in and contain him in the name of profits. I think that was the biggest thing. So was it Cousy then? I mean, what, so was Cousy the one responsible for the departure of, of Robertson and, and Lucas, or, or was it sort of a quote-unquote team effort for them to both well, with, back-to-back? Well, with Robertson, it was more of, of a team thing. Um, I think it was 1967-68. Robertson only played 65 games, still a lot of games. But um, management was irate that he would, you know, he would – call himself out on the day of a game. And um, so there was really kind of a, a, a management level interest in, in trying to move him, uh, trying to come up with situations where they could, uh, you know, get him off the team or at least to accept a trade. Um, with Lucas, it was really more of a, a koozie thing alone. And the dynamic around that, was that just a butting of heads? Well, and, and, and it was kind of an odd thing, but Cousy uh, wanted to install a different offense, and and the Royals had already been a very strong offensive team. But this this is what he brought to the table as a coach was more offense, and uh, he wanted the Royals to be more of a running team, even though they were already scoring a lot of points, and uh, Lucas. Um, was starting to get to the point where he was becoming uh, a heavier, more of a lumbering player uh, in 1969. He was like 250, 260 pounds. And so uh, Cousy wanted running forwards. And uh, the two also butted heads uh, a little bit on uh, the offense that Cousy was installing. He was taking the ball out of the hands of Oscar Robertson, which is almost unimaginable. And um, he uh, was basically turning Lucas into a bench player. It's really interesting, though, that um, both of them, Robertson and and Lucas, um, (laughs) found uh, NBA glory uh, after they left. Robertson most immediately in in Milwaukee and 
uh, Lucas a little later. He had he had more of an oversay, I guess, of of where he was traded. I guess a no trade con- uh, clause or some ability to kind of. Uh, have a hand in where he went, obviously going to San Francisco for a couple of years, but winning a championship uh, in New York. I mean, um, you, you wonder, I guess, if if you're a Royals fan from back in the day, uh, these are clearly two uh, superstar players that had plenty of gas left in the tank, at least for their next or next to next ports of call. Yeah, that, and that's true. And it's important to note that uh, management tried to trade uh, Robertson several times, uh, especially in the late 60s, uh, to you know Baltimore, to Chicago. Those are probably some of the more well-known efforts. And, but he had the no-trade clause and had the ability to nix those trades. And so that led to the tension that the team had for him. And ultimately, they just drove him out without a trade, pretty much. Um, until, you know, uh, Milwaukee was able to do something, uh, you know, to give something back to obtain him. Um, but, yeah, Lucas uh, was able to uh, negotiate his trade out of the city and then negotiate his trade to New York, uh, which was a very good situation for him. Yeah, and, and, and the, the, the halcyon days of the New York Knicks uh, still to this day, that, that era. Oh, yeah. Dollar Bill and DeBusher and, and, and Walt Clyde and, and, and all of those. And, and uh, you, you know, I haven't grown up in New York. It's just uh, it's it's still tangible today. And um, sadly, it's uh, perhaps the one of, if not the sort of golden eras of that team. But I again digress. Let's get into the demise. Um, we've kind of hinted at you. We're now clearly in the midst of of some of the dynamics of that. Um, here's a team come 1970, 71, 72-ish. Um, is clearly either on the hunt for another location or is a fait accompli. Um, maybe some background as to, if you will, some of the last days to the extent that you can uh, talk about them and why Kansas City, no, why Kansas City, Omaha, <laughs> uh, which, which tells you something right away. Um, why is that the sort of uh, promised land? Yeah, uh, another great set of stories. But um, when they brought Kuzi in, they actually ended their annual slate of Cleveland games that they had developed over the several previous seasons. And and the Cleveland games uh, were sort of a supplement to declining Cincinnati attendance uh, that the team started to experience in the late 60s. And so when they gave the Cleveland games up too, uh, the finances of the team, again, became a real concern um, and it, uh, they took in a, a general manager figure who had absolutely no experience in the league, but he was a promoter um, of uh, small college basketball in the Midwest, uh, Kansas City, Nebraska, Iowa, Kansas. And he, uh, the motivation of the team at that point under Lewis Jacobs was uh, gaining concession contracts in different arenas around the country. And so these were things that were playing into each other. And uh, they were actually establishing something of a basis for for Omaha and Kansas City, even before the team actually moved. Well, also, part of this, uh, uh, I think we just danced around it, is that Cleveland itself got an expansion franchise in 1970. 
That's true. I'm guessing. So I guess the outsider and the naive uh, in me, which is quite substantial, uh, would say. So did that have a direct effect on maybe accelerating Cincinnati's uh, departure from that market? I'm wondering the calculus of adding Cleveland. Perhaps the league office thought there would be a local rivalry kind of instantly, but maybe not. Um, actually, the league had a longtime fascination with Cleveland, um, even as far back as the 40s. Um, you know, there was a time when you couldn't get anyone to return uh, a phone call from an uh, NBA salesman uh, about the establishment of, of expansion franchises. And the city of Cleveland really had no interest in it. It, it was a hockey town. Uh, but there were several efforts in the 60s uh, before the arrival of the Cavaliers where they tried to get Cleveland in the loop. Jerry Lucas was part of two of those efforts, by the way. And um, Was one of those the Pipers, most, the uh, George Steinbrenner Cleveland Pipers? That's right, yeah. The, the Pipers, who were actually a league champion uh, in another rival league, the ABL. And uh, there was also an effort uh, to get Art Modell uh, to be an NBA owner in 1968 uh, that a lot of people don't recall or remember. But he almost ended up with the, the Cleveland expansion team uh, before it ended up being the Cavaliers with Nick Maletti. But it sound, it feels to me, though, that if anybody should have had, I don't know, right of first refusal, for lack of a better term, for the, for the Cleveland market, uh, it would have been the Royals, right? Given especially the, the 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 number of games that they had played over the years there, um, I, I agree. I'm mm-hmm. wondering. I'm just wondering. I and maybe maybe this is an imponderable, and we could dig dig deeper somewhere somehow. But I'm just wondering, like, what the what the dynamic and what the game theory was around sort of that expansion to Cleveland, whether that would be seen as strengthening a Cincinnati franchise in the state of Ohio or undermining it and or perhaps accelerating what might have been already a wobbly situation in Cincinnati, which I guess is really what happened. This was an ongoing discussion, um, especially with the uh, um, the influence of Lucas, who was actually signed by a Cleveland team that split up before it hit the court, the Pipers. Uh, this was actually a discussion over several years, and there was there was talk about the two cities actually sharing the team. Uh, Cincinnati fans, I think, were, were very cold to the idea, and and their interest in the team was was partly waning because of the Cleveland cloud that was over it for a number of years, I think. So how does Kansas City and, more bizarrely, Omaha come into the mix as the place to abscond to? Well... With the emergence of the Cavaliers, uh, the door really kind of shut on Cleveland. I mean, uh, they have their expansion team, although initially it's not a very good one, but at at least they have their team. And so um, part of it was um, the the ownership of the team under the Jacobs. Um, One of the things they did um, was they were talking about merging with the ABA, the new league that emerged uh, in 1967. And um, they were talking about merging the two leagues, the NBA and the ABA. And in order to do that, 
the owners of both leagues had to sort of plead poverty. And Oscar Robertson was president of the NBA Players Union. And, and he and the leaders of that union uh, demanded that the NBA owners open their books to show just how poor they were. And so the, the sticking point on the merger actually was the Royals. <laughs> Um, and, and what they discovered about the Jacobs ownership uh, in 1970 and then uh, in 1972. Interesting. So this is also hauntingly similar. Well, uh, not similar, but parallel. I mean, the Cincinnati uh, Stingers were actually one of the uh, sticky wickets in the WHA's eventual absorption by the NHL in years later. Mm-hmm. too. Um it's very interesting because Cincinnati here again, you know, just at the precipice of 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 greatness, I guess, is major league indoor uh, sports and um, and not sort of uh, not sort of uh, climbing that uh, that summit. Um, so, OK, but I, okay, the curiosities just continue. So Kansas City, I can understand because clearly it's, it's a baseball town. It's an AFL becoming NFL football town. Um it's always been pretty strong as a minor league hockey thing, and, and obviously, and in, 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 uh, you know, basketball at the college level. So it seems like a natural fit. But I, and I know your focus is on Cincinnati and the Royals, but where does Omaha come into the mixture? I mean, you mentioned before about uh, sort of the the, the the sort of college sort of uh, effort around uh, you know what the owners were sort of intrigued by and stuff, but. You know, th- these are not markets that are next door to each other. This is a 185-mile drive as the crow flies. Um, mm-hmm. It's it's not the most natural pairing of cities. I could see Kansas City and, I don't know, Topeka maybe. Uh, I-, I could see Lincoln and <laughs> Omaha perhaps, perhaps. I could see Tulsa and Oklahoma City as being re- relatively close to each other. But I don't know. I, it strikes me as odd as to why these two would be sort of a tandem uh, approach versus maybe just Kansas City, which is obviously the bigger market. Well, from what I've been able to to gather through researching the situation with uh, Joe Axelson coming in as general manager, the Omaha situation is really largely his invention. Uh, he became very connected with local arena leaders there, and um, he was able to sell uh, the Jacobs ownership of the team on the city. And so... From what I can tell, it was really just a, a masterpiece of salesmanship on his part. But he was able to encourage the team's association with that city. And then it became a, a supplemental part of the team's ownership uh, when the team moved out of Cincinnati. Yeah, and interestingly, I think the uh, Omaha arena was uh, was larger by about 2,000 seats uh, than the one in Kansas City at the time. This is before Kemper Arena opened up. Oh, yeah. The Kansas City situation wasn't as ideal on the inside as it looked on the outside. Um, the Royals had been complaining about, you know, the NFL Bengals as, you know, taking a piece of their interest. And here were the Chiefs who had just won the Super Bowl in 1970. And um, there was a new baseball team. The Royals, I think, had just shown up in uh, 60, yeah. Yeah, 68 or 9. And so there, there's actually inherent competition. And then the local big arena that they wanted is not available right away. So they ended up with a smaller, older arena than the gardens had been. <laughs> yeah, 
Yeah, and, and look, I also now I'm sort of processing it, right? So I, I, you know, it was hard. I didn't sort of fully comprehend how Cincinnati had been extending some of their games to Omaha prior to the move as well. It's just, it just, it's just to me, it's intriguing. It seems so incongruous, right? Where, you know, the, the appeal of Omaha, obviously a city of like Kansas City, and, and fusing those two together, and even I guess even after the renamed Royals now Kings. Uh, dropped the Omaha part of their of their name. They still uh, even played a few games, uh, I guess, through the 70s uh, in Omaha. That's right. So the relationship was still pretty much there. But I guess what, what I'm now finally recognizing that you're saying is that the Omaha component of this actually was more of the, I guess, the initial hook for a move from Cincinnati than actually the Kansas City one was? Well, yeah, there was the incentive of moving the team after um, it became apparent that there were some indirect ties between the Jacobs ownership and um, what we could say are uh, unsavory uh, gambling elements uh, with some of the investments that the Jacobs had elsewhere, Las Vegas, Arizona, and so forth. And so in order to clean up the image of the team, and again, this is, you know, part of the times they really want uh, to present a, a squeaky clean image. You know, this is this is the era where Broadway Joe was forced to sell the bar. You know, yeah. So um, they wanted to just move the team completely out of the city and into the hands of a completely different ownership group. And um, and Axelson was actually part of the new ownership group as well. And he really pushed to make sure that Omaha was included with Kansas City. Fascinating. Um, all right. So I got two more questions and I'll let you promote and then get on to the rest of your life uh, for having spent <laughs> so much time with us. Today. So uh, number one, um, are, in doing the research for this, are there any sort of unsung heroes or names or, or people, either players or otherwise in the 15 years of Cincinnati Royals existence that um, you either discovered or uh, learned more about or, or frankly deserves a little bit more attention perhaps than some of the names that we obsessed about earlier? Um, there's a bunch of them uh, in, in a number of respects. Um, Go ahead. Alphabetically, among... just kidding. <laughs> well, um, among the early players who were really instrumental in the team becoming competitive, uh, one of the biggest, uh, without question, is Wayne Embry. And he was actually very symbolic of the team uh, in the early 60s in that he was not well known and he was considered an overachiever on the court. Uh, he was a 6'8 center. Uh, in a sport where, you know, you had guys like uh, Wilt Chamberlain and Bill Russell and Nate Thurmond and Walt Bellamy, these these huge near seven-foot athletes. And this guy played over his head every night for these guys and just gave them every single thing he had. I, I can't think of a player who probably worked harder uh, to make the team a winner than Embry, uh, who, had an, uh, who later moved on to an amazing amazing uh, management career in the NBA. And so he's a cutting edge figure uh, in sports as a whole. Um, 
as somebody who moved into management after being a player who almost didn't even play in the league. Um, one of the last stars the players, uh, the, the team had was Nate Archibald. And I'm, I'm racking my brain to find a guy uh, like him who was, you know, 5'11", uh, you know, under six feet and, and had his impact as a player. Uh, he was just devastating on the court with the ball. Um, he could go left on anybody. And uh, opposing teams would guard him in layers because he would always get by the first guy. And so somebody else had to cut him off on the way to the basket. That's how lethal he was uh, off the dribble. And um, he was uh, a guy who could score 40 points pretty much on anybody during his last year in Cincinnati. And he didn't get nearly the, the amount of attention or respect that he should have. Uh, those are two guys who come to mind. Um, there's so many other good guys and figures associated with the team. Um, it, it, the entire team is really a, a succession of good guys, good-natured people uh, within the community and the city uh, who were uh, a part of a good story for 15 years. So the other question then is the legacy. And we've had this, we asked this question a lot of, uh, of folks involved in uh, delving into stories about um, uh, teams that are still around in different uh, incarnations and forms, right? And the, the Royals clearly continue to live on in the um, currently somewhat woeful Sacramento Kings, but not always such. Um, I guess the question in there is this, where in your mind does the 15 year history period of the Royals in Cincinnati uh, live? Um, how much or how little have the Kings uh, remembered it, um, uh, keep it in their, in their storyline? Um, would it be better suited or arguably is it still, to the extent it's still remembered, rooted in Cincinnati itself, or perhaps maybe in Omaha or, or some other place. Um, you know, clearly a lot of teams uh, that exist today in the big leagues um, have varying degrees of, I guess, uh, either success or um, take enough effort, frankly, to, to go back and remember, um, sometimes cynically, uh, to make a buck on a new, you know, a new old uniform, so to speak, or a logo design or some t-shirt element or whatever, but frankly, sometimes lovingly or maybe forced by uh, outside issues that force them to remember uh, what came before them. So I guess the question in there is Sacramento Kings, good, bad, indifferent to the Royals part of the history and or, you know, where in your mind does the Royals history best and truly live for those who, those who remember? Um, at, at best, uh, the Sacramento Kings have been indifferent uh, to the Cincinnati teams. Um, there was an effort uh, to remember them uh, when the Sacramento teams were winning. Um, they retired the numbers for Twyman and Stokes and then also Oscar Robertson. And so to them, that's really the Cincinnati years or the team as a whole. They really sort of begins and ends with those two stories, the, the great Twyman Stokes story, the two great teammates, and then Robertson, 
you know, who might be the greatest single player under six foot nine to ever play in the league. So uh, Sacramento kind of is its own animal. They remember their own stars, uh, their own international players. Um, and the rest of the previous stops are, are largely dismissed. Uh, Joe Axelson was actually part of the departure of the Kansas City Kings to Sacramento also. So this guy ended up being reviled uh, by the fans of, of two marginalized NBA cities, Kansas City and uh, Cincinnati. And uh, Rochester is just sort of this uh, pro basketball city that's somewhere in the the uh, the great attic of sports. You know, it's sort of sitting on a box somewhere in the back uh, waiting for somebody to dust it off again. Uh, but the story of the franchise in Sacramento really only begins and ends with Sacramento, unfortunately. Well, look, and that's uh, and we've heard that plenty of times. There's a, a whitewashing, uh, uh, if you will, uh, uh, you know, um, or, or I think, frankly, mostly cynically. I mean, what best case of late is the um, on again, off again, um, uh, in, uh, enamorment or, or love affair with the Hartford Whalers franchise in uh, Carolina with the Hurricanes and the NHL. Um, you know, and and the that's still a very sort of raw wound uh, in in at least a, a current and and previous generation of Hartford Whalers fans. Um, some love it because it revives the the memories of that team. Yet the um, you know it's also hijacking, frankly, uh, the history of of a, a the a format of the team that didn't exist and and arguably was. The, you know, responsible for for uh, its relocation. I, you know, you bring up the Rochester part of it again. Um, one wonders where that 1951 NBA championship, the only one, by the way, of the current Kings franchise in their history. That's right. Um, you wonder where that uh, that final um, championship banner lives. I Number one, uh, I'm assuming it hung in Cincinnati Gardens when they were in Cincinnati. But number two, I wonder if it hangs in whatever the arena is now called uh, in Sacramento, um, at least nominally as a part of the longstanding history of that franchise. There's no banner. Um, the Royals actually lost money winning the NBA title in 1951. There was no trophy. Um, there were a couple of dinners held and, uh, there were some toasts and some handshakes, and that's pretty much where it ended as far as winning the title in, in Rochester. And um, there's, uh, the, it is a sad thing, I think, uh, that the Sacramento Kings have done very little uh, to remember these previous stops. Uh, for Cincinnati, the only franchise in the league that has really shown any interest or appreciation for the city's history in the league has probably been the Cavaliers. Well, that, I was, I was going to ask you that. that. That would seem somewhat logical as, as a way to maybe kind of adopt some of that history, given that overlap of, of that city's part of at least, you know, a bunch of home games prior to the Cavaliers arriving. Yeah, that, that's pretty much it. That's all there is. Um, you know, Kansas City was left behind. And, uh, you know, there were uh, former players like Archibald and uh, Sam Lacey, who was a very good NBA center in the 70s. You know, they lobbied for expansion and 
you know, to have some games played there the way that teams did in the 60s. But uh, today's NBA just doesn't do that kind of thing. Well, and, uh, you know, not to jinx it, but uh, I don't think they need any help in the jinx department. I mean, the Kings haven't made the playoffs since uh, 2006. So there you go. I No, uh, mm-hmm. no new championship to remember uh, on the horizon. But I maybe, sadly, it'll take uh, a championship run to then unearth the memories of that uh, 19, what, 1951 championship season. Um, uh, and, you know, the, the and the articles and the stories that come from that of like, hey, this is not the Kings first, you know, ever, you know, championship, but we're still very far away from that. But, you know, I, I don't mean to sort of uh, uh, obsess too much on it, but it, it's a it's a constant question we ask uh, for a lot of these things. And in certain situations, uh, it's pretty direct. Uh, it's pretty uh, well absorbed and, and kept in in said uh, team's histories. Uh, but on, on more than a few occasions, uh, it um, it is somehow lost. You said it's in the attic. Uh, some would say in the basement. Some would say it was left in a ditch. Um, <laughs> the garage. <laughs> but look, the, I mean, you know, to me, that is just, that's truly sad. I mean, and, and I'm, I'm not trying to say, hey, everything should be history and, and you know, uh, crank up the, uh, the gramophone and let's remember, you know, what was 100 years ago. But, um, <laughs> you know, especially for a franchise uh, that is one of the, the longest con- uh, continuous teams, I mean, at least from the pro level from, you could say, 48 and 49, but obviously was preceded, as you said before, from from semi-pro uh, after World War One, right? And all That's the way right. through all these various stops from Rochester to Cincinnati to Kansas City to Omaha to all the various places that they considered home games as well, the Dayton and, and, and the like, and, and a, a largely woeful, certainly last decade and a half in Sacramento, you'd think you'd want to celebrate at least that one championship and embrace that sort of history because... Uh, you know, lots of very famous um, people, uh, uh, teams, uh, stories, uh, despite the lack of championships, are all part of that lineage. And uh, it's just sad to see it sort of um, kind of forgotten. And that's, you know, in a strange way, uh, part of uh, why we sort of do this uh, this little show, because it's one way at least to sort of keep some of the... Uh, some of these memories alive a little bit and um, God forbid mm-hmm. maybe it gets resurrected and maybe a banner is recreated and domiciled somewhere. God forbid, or people watch for the segue, uh, buy books by people like you who <laughs> devote to the topic. So why not promote now? Tell us about both uh, not only the Royals book, but also the, uh, uh, the Jerry Lucas book and, and, and how it's going, how you're promoting it and where you can find it and all that stuff. Okay. And, and by the way, I'm a big appreciator of, of anyone who promotes history and sports and otherwise. Um, this is, I think, a country that sometimes has difficulty appreciating history. Um, in Cincinnati, the gardens were uh, recently torn down, completely uh, bulldozed. And, um, you know, there are some of us who were, uh, you know, upset about that because uh, the building had all this history, not just sports, but also uh, music and other things. And so uh, with all the bulldozing of the old arenas, um, you know, we have lost an appreciation for some of the history that took place in them. So I did want to mention that. Um, As far as the books, 
the Cincinnati's Basketball Royalty is the name of the book. It came out uh, in 2016. It's available on Amazon. Um, there's actually a page that I created for it on Facebook. Um, it's called Remember the Cincinnati Royals. So, you know, the history and remembering it is sort of the drive of both of these books. Uh, Jerry Lucas, in my opinion, is is one of the most glossed over basketball legends and somebody on par with an Oscar Robertson who we spent a lot of time in the company of. And so I thought it was well past time to write a book like him. Uh, and there's sort of a movement on this online where former players like Elgin Baylor and Marvin Barnes are finally getting books. And so I thought it was time for Jerry to get one. And his book is also available on Amazon. It just came out this past February. And so I'm still kind of getting my uh, my foot in the water a little bit as far as promoting it across the state of Ohio and elsewhere. All right, you Sacramento Kings fans, let's get on it. Let's get into your history. The two books you must get from our guest this week, Jerry Schultz, Cincinnati's Basketball Royalty. A look back at 15 years of Cincinnati Royals NBA basketball. Uh, that book is available in paperback and in Kindle form uh, on Amazon. Or if you want to go to our website at goodseatsstillavailable.com and search up this episode with uh, Jerry, episode 262, that is. Uh, and you'll find a convenient link there and you'll give us some referral love by doing so. We appreciate that. The other book you should get is his uh, relatively brand new book, Jerry's. It's called Jerry Lucas, spelled differently, Mr. Ohio Basketball. And it uh, goes more into to, uh, the uh, the story of Lucas's career, uh, not just of the Royals, but also uh, uh, beyond after that, including an NBA championship, which we hinted at. Um, and again, you can find... Uh, that wherever good books are found. But again, our website, goodseatsstillavailable.com, that's where we post all of our episodes. So if you're a podcast feed, somehow uh, doesn't give you the first 150 episodes of our life, well, uh, they're all there on the website for you. You can get them that way too. But uh, the best way, of course, to make sure that you get every single stinking episode that we do going forward is to subscribe or follow us wherever you get good podcasts. We're available just about wherever you can get them. Uh, our website, again, at goodseatsstillavailable.com. Our email address is hello at goodseatsstillavailable.com. You can follow us on social media. On Twitter, we're at goodseatsstill. Uh, on Instagram, we're at goodseatsstillavailable. And there's a Facebook page uh, devoted to us as well. Uh, we have a little weekly email newsletter. You can sign up for that on our website. Uh, and what else? Jerry Payne, you know him, you love him, you can't live without him. Thank you for your production help this week, as always, sir. And let's leave you uh, with a sort of a, an adjacent tune. Uh, we're talking about Cincinnati and all, and uh, we love uh, any opportunity we can uh, reminisce about things uh, either real or uh, imagined about uh, the uh, uh, the great city there. And uh, the WKRP, of course, in Cincinnati. Great show from CBS back in the day, four years, I think, in length. And uh, why not play the uh, full version of the of the theme song? And here it is by Steve Carlisle. It's um, uh, let's see. I want to get full credit here as we get it underway. Uh, it was uh, written by um, uh, I think Steve Carlisle was the performer, but uh, it was uh, written by Tom Wells. Uh, lyrics by the show producer uh, and creator Hugh Wilson. Uh, Jim Ellis, who did the uh, memorable gibberish song at the end of the show. 
which we're not going to play now, uh, was uh, instrumental as part of that as well. And it was produced by, get this, Jerry Buckner and Gary Garcia, they of Pac-Man fever fame. Yes, Buckner and Garcia. All right, I've talked too long about it. I've gone down the rabbit hole, but here it is. In all its two-minute and 51-second glory, WKRP in Cincinnati. Let's see you later, everybody. Uh, Take care. We'll see you next week. We love you. Bye. Baby, if you've ever wondered, wondered whatever became of me, I'm living on the air in Cincinnati, Cincinnati WKRP. Got kind of tired of packing and unpacking, town to town, up and down the dial. Once in a while Heading up that highway Leaving you behind Hardest thing I ever had to do Broke my heart in two But baby, pay no mind The price for finding me Was losing you Help me hide my lonesome feeling Far away from you and feeling low It's getting late, my friend, my love, I miss you so Take good care of you, I've got to go